0: Turn to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23 is where we'll start today. I must say, I I need to give uh, credit to, of course, God, the Holy Spirit, and His Word, but uh, God has has brought all sorts of different people and books into my life, and I'm very encouraged by the, the great materials that are out there. And if you want to read a particularly good book, it's not real long, I, uh, one of the many books I've read this year was uh, a book by Arthur Pink called the, uh, I think it's called The Seven Sayings of the Savior uh, on the Cross, if I remember correctly. Uh, th- this is not a uh, an exact uh, um, inf- repeat of that book. So if you want to read the book, I encourage you to do so. I probably might put that in the church library. But we've been talking about Jesus' uh, crucifixion. Jesus' death on the cross, and because of the crucifixion, Christ spoke, uh, several sayings. In fact, we're gonna look at seven sayings today when Christ was on the cross, and he, he was under great duress, great, uh, suffering, and, uh, it was very, very difficult, dur- of course, during this time, because don't forget, he is human. He's not only divine, but human. He's, you got two natures in one forever. And so during the final hours on the cross, he was speaking with incredible, great difficulty. He didn't say a whole lot, but there are seven short sayings we'll look at today. Seven brief sayings that the Savior spoke on the cross. And every one of them, by the way, reveals some, some great, powerful truths. Things that are applicable to us, by the way. And one of the things that you're going to see as we look at these is that Christ remained in control throughout this whole event even as he's dying, he he hasn't lost control of what's going on. Each of his sayings was very rich with great significance. So let's look at these seven sayings of Jesus Christ when he was on the cross. Number one, we see a plea for forgiveness here in Luke chapter twenty-three. There's a plea for forgiveness. Look at uh, well, we'll look at the context a little bit here, but look at the saying itself. And if you don't have a Bible, I have. I have put it up here on the screen. But the, the first what, he, plea, the first uh, saying was, was a plea for mercy, and it's on behalf of the very people who are tormenting him. Luke actually records that shortly after the cross was raised up there on, on the hill of Calvary, uh, Jesus prayed to God for forgiveness on the behalf of the, the people who were tormenting him. Here's what, the Bible says in Luke twenty three, starting in verse thirty-three. I'm reading uh, starting in verse thirty-three. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him, that's Jesus, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We'll focus on that last little part there. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. An interesting statement. By the way, just think about that for a moment. If, if you were in Jesus' feet, so to speak, in his situation, and you had people unjustly nailing you to a cross, would those be the kind of words coming out of your mouth? <laughs> Probably not. Right? Probably not. Jesus could have easily threatened. Of course, he's sinless, so we don't see him doing that. Could have been very easy for somebody to to lash back to uh, throw out curses to their enemy. But instead, what, what is Jesus doing here? He's praying on their behalf. This priestly intercession was, by the way, it was done in fulfillment of Old Testament Prophecy. In fact, uh, Isaiah chapter fifty-three verse twelve. You're familiar with Isaiah fifty-three, and of course Jesus fulfills that. And He says, uh, the prophet Isaiah says, He poured out His soul unto death, and He was numbered with the transgressors, and He bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Notice the little last little part of verse twelve. There, He made intercession. For the transgressors. So Jesus fulfilled that here in his prayer to the Father. By the way, the phrase, you'll notice there, verse 34, the phrase, for they do not know what they do. Now, there's a little bit of debate on what does that exactly does Jesus mean by that. Well, that doesn't suggest that the tormentors, the transgressors, were somehow unaware of, uh, you know, their sin and, and what they were doing. And by the way, think about this. Besides, does ignorance actually pardon someone from sin? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It's always been that way, by the way. Even in the Old Testament, God had provided sacrifices for sins of ignorance. So God had even prescribed that. You can read about that in your Old Testament. So ignorance doesn't pardon anybody from sin. However, they were... What they were ignorant of was just the enormity of the crime that they were committing. They didn't really fully understand what they were doing. They were blinded to the full reality that this was actually the Son of God who had been nailed on the cross. They didn't understand that. So how is Jesus' prayer answered? This is a prayer. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. How was that prayer answered? Well, it was answered in many ways. <laughs> Interestingly enough, the first answer actually came with the conversion of one of the thieves that is hanging on the cross next to Jesus. Here he is, he's hanging on a cross next to Jesus, and uh, God opens his eyes to who this man was right next to him. And we, we see the conversion of one of the thieves on the cross, Another answer to prayer was the conversion of one of the Roman soldiers. You can read about him in your Bibles. Here's one of the guys re- partly responsible for, for having Jesus up there on the cross. And uh, he, he, he believed, and he put his faith in Jesus Christ. Other answers to the prayer came in the weeks and months to follow. You read in Acts chapter 2, for example, uh, the, the preaching of the Gospel in Pentecost, there were just thousands and thousands of people who were saved, particularly at Pentecost. Untold numbers of people who were there in Jerusalem were saved and converted to Jesus Christ. So it's important to understand that Jesus' plea for his killers' forgiveness did, it didn't guarantee unconditional forgiveness of everyone who was actually participating in the crucifixion. So he was interceding on the behalf of all those who would repent, all those who would turn from their sin to him. His prayer was that when they finally realized just the enormity of what they had done, and then they went and sought the Heavenly Father's forgiveness for their sin, that then uh, his prayer was, in, in this sense, that God the Father wouldn't hold that against them that his Father would love them and forgive them. So you need to understand something about God's forgiveness. God's forgiveness is never granted to someone who remains in their unbelief, someone who refuses to forsake their sin and turn to God and believe in Jesus. Those people are not granted forgiveness So in that sense, divine forgiveness is conditional. If someone wants to remain in their sin, then they will go to hell. And so those who clung to their hatred of Jesus were not automatically just pardoned and forgiven from the crimes that they had committed. But those who, of course, repented, sought forgiveness, would, of course, find abundant mercy. And so, my friend, the forgiveness that Christ prayed for is something you need to understand. This is freely offered to all. The Bible is clear on that. All who come in faith will find forgiveness at the cross. So, in fact, what we see here is an, an e- uh, God is actually eager to forgive repentant sinners. The, the clear illustration of that in your Bible is the prodigal son. And the prodigal son, of course, he goes off and... Wastes his inheritance, lives in debauchery and sin, and comes back, and the father's waiting for his son to return and loves him and, and just throws a like a big party for him. My son has returned, and he's, he's all excited about this. It's a wonderful illustration of how our father is longing for, for uh, sinners to, to come to him. That's the way he is. And so those who do that, then he promises to freely forgive Number two, the second saying is also found in this context here. It's a promise of salvation. It's a promise of salvation. Look at verse 43. Uh, We we see, uh, here's what Jesus says in verse 43. He he said to this man uh, who was on the cross next to him, He says, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. That is a promise of salvation. So Christ's second saying from the cross here is showing just how generous forgiveness is bestowed even on the most unlikely of recipients. Just think about this in the context here for a moment. As the hours of agony were passing on the cross, one of the two thieves, by the way, both of them were mocking Jesus, but one of the two thieves who had mocked Christ earlier, here here he is, now he has this change of heart He has this change of heart, because in verse 42, he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So here he's just, moments before, he's been mocking Jesus, and now he's had this change of heart, and he recognizes and sees who Jesus really is. This is amazing, because this man was wicked. He's wicked. This guy is a career criminal. He's devoted his life to to stealing people's belongings, just making a wreck of people's lives, and may, just making mayhem. But there came a point where this guy goes from taunting Jesus to shutting his mouth. And then the, the silence actually turns to repentance. And the, the heart of this thief was actually changed. God changed his heart. That's what conversion is. And so as he studies Jesus, he has, doesn't have a whole lot else to do, He's stuck on the cross. He can't get off. And so here he is. He's studying Jesus. He's listening to Jesus' words. He sees his demeanor. And the thief began to see Jesus was who he actually claimed to be. He's Probably seeing this little sign above him that says, King of the Jews. And so the proof of his repentance, by the way, is actually seen in his changed behavior. He didn't stay the same. He didn't stay the same. Uh you, you might ask, well, what did the thief actually do? Well, he can't do a whole lot, can he? Uh, he t- but he does turn to Jesus. He does confess Jesus as Lord. He confesses him as Lord. In fact, some Bible translations there in verse 42 actually have the word Lord. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And so that, confection- that confession of Jesus as Lord and King was... Uh, Just an example of how God had changed his heart. And so, right after he says that in verse 42, we got verse 43, where Jesus responds to his changed heart and says, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The incident, by the way... is a great biblical illustration of the truth we, we often call justification by faith alone. One of the, the five solas of the Reformation was justification by faith alone. It's a very important doctrine, because even, even the Roman Catholics in their theological system believe in justification. They believe in faith. The problem is it's faith plus other stuff. It's not faith alone. And so, this is a very important doctrine, and this is a great biblical illustration because think about this. What did this guy have time to do before he died? He had time to do nothing meritorious, nothing of good works. He was in no position to do anything meritoriously. He had no hope of ever earning Christ's favor. But what he did re- realize, though, he was, he was, he, he's, Realizing, I am in a hopeless situation here. This thief goes to Christ and seeks mercy. And that's why he says, remember me. And what does Jesus do? Jesus gave assurance of complete forgiveness. He gives him assurance of eternal life. And and it was something that he could rely on at that very moment. Because Jesus knows, Jesus says, today. Today you will be with me. In paradise. And so the event clearly proves that justification is by faith alone. And by justification, I mean that this is an, an act where God declares us to be righteous. It's, it, it isn't just wiping away our sin, but God gives us Christ's righteousness, imputed righteousness in, from Christ. And it comes by faith alone. So Jesus' words to this dying thief here conveyed to him a promise of full forgiveness it's a wonderful assurance sadly so many people don't have that full assurance that they are forgiven and they go through life wondering well you know if i die at this moment what's going to happen to me well he knew that every evil deed had been taken care of he wasn't expecting uh, or he wasn't expected to atone for his own sins he wasn't expected to do sort of some some sort of penance for his sins. He wasn't expected to perform any ritual. He couldn't do those things. He couldn't even get baptized, could he? Before he died. He wasn't consigned to purgatory? I mean, this was a bad guy. If anybody needed to go to purgatory, it was this guy, right? But notice Jesus doesn't believe in purgatory. There's no like kind of a halfway house between uh you know, before earth and and heaven. No, he didn't go to purgatory. He went with Jesus to be with Jesus. So his forgiveness was full. His forgiveness was free. And it was immediate because Jesus said, Today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus didn't say a whole lot to him, but what else did Jesus need to say? I mean, that's all the guy needed to hear, right? He was... Here he is, imagine this, he's still hanging on the cross, suffering great torment, but the misery of his soul is gone. How comforting that would be. There's so many people, you know, you, you can take a lot of physical suffering when the suffering of your soul is gone. And that's what had happened to him. And for the first time in his life, here he is, he's free from the burden and guilt of his sin. The thief was now clothed in Christ's perfect righteousness, and soon they would be together in paradise. The third saying of Jesus from the cross is a provision for his mother. And for this one, you need to turn over to the Gospel according to John, John chapter 19. Now, we'll be looking at several of the Gospels today, so hope you have your Bibles ready. Let me kind of set the scene here for you, because we're we're jumping in the middle of a context. In John 19 verse 25, it describes a little bit of the scene for us. Uh, verse 25, if you're are you there in your Bibles, John uh, 19, chapter 19, verse 25, says uh, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. (coughs) So, Jesus is clearly not alone here. So we've we've got at least these people who are there. By the way, John also indicates, if you look at verse 26, that he is also present. That's crucial to understanding Jesus' saying. So look at verse 26. It says, "...when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby..." Okay, so that's that's John's way of saying, Hey guys, I I'm also I was also there. Okay? Uh John seems to be quite humble about this. And so John the Apostle is also there. Imagine that, though. I hope none of you have ever have to see one of your loved ones die before your eyes. That would be a horrible thing to watch. But here we we have Jesus' loved ones who are there. They're experiencing the death of one of their loved ones, of course, is Jesus. One of the people mentioned there is, is Mary, the earthly mother of Jesus. She's there. Now, think about that. Uh, I'm sure she still had a mother's heart, like any normal mother should have for her children. I mean, years before, at, at, at Jesus' birth, it's interesting, uh, you remember uh, Joseph and Mary had taken little baby Jesus to the temple, and there was a prophet named Simeon who was there, and he actually says something about this situation we see here in the text. I'll put it up here on the screen, because here's where uh, Luke chapter 2 says this, verse 34. Here's what Simeon said, "...Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also." that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Notice interesting words, a sword. Simeon uses the word of a sword, not literally a sword, but figuratively a sword would pierce Mary's heart. That sword that Simeon spoke of was taking place at this very moment as she had to watch her firstborn son die. By the way, Mary is not a virgin. She was when Jesus was born, but... Mary also had other children, okay, and and so Jesus, you understand, was was her firstborn son. And, and as you see this, she is a, a a model of courage. She's not, you know, I'm, of course she's emotional, but she's 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 enduring. She's enduring. She she must have known uh, the prophecies of the Old Testament, and was probably very encouraged by the the promises of God's word and knowing what jesus was doing and so jesus here he is he's on the cross he's enduring incredible suffering himself and 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 he looks down and sees his earthly mother grieving he sees these other women grieving he sees john uh, he was probably grieving too and so his his third saying from the cross here is reflecting his love particularly for his earthly mother and here's what the text says in john 19 verse 26 When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now, you you might be a little confused on what's going on there, so let me make sure we're all clear. When Jesus says, Behold your son. He's not pointing fingers at himself here and saying, "Hey, uh, I'm your son." Uh, she already knew that, <laughs> right? That's kind of obvious. That's not what he's he's talking about. It, just kind of, I can picture Jesus kind of nodding, you know, looking at at his his earthly mother Mary and kind of nodding over there at John and saying, "Woman, your son," because he can't move his hands really and his his feet, of course. So he's not referring to himself he's referring probably to John here and he's making a, a gracious provision for Mary. He was delegating to the apostle John the the responsibility to care for Mary in her old age. By the way that was something that was expected in that culture. There was no government going to hand hand you out money. There was no uh you know superannuation or some dole or uh you know welfare system or or you know, they they didn't have uh, mutual funds that they had invested in for their retirement, or there was none of that sort of stuff. Okay, and so this was a beautiful gesture on Jesus' part. It really says a lot about the personal nature of Jesus' love. Here he is, he's dying in anguish, in serious pain, and Jesus is just showing he's selfless. He's he's turned aside here for a moment to care for the earthly needs of those who are standing there at the cross. Although he's, of course, occupied with the most important event in the history of redemption, he remembered to make provision for the needs of his earthly mother. Notice uh, there there has been some controversy over how he addresses his earthly mother. Notice he, he calls her woman. By the way, nowhere in the Gospels does he... Jesus ever call his earthly mother mother he doesn't say that he always calls her woman the expression by the way doesn't convey disrespect he always honored his mother he always obeyed that commandment that we see in the scriptures but what he is doing though he's underscoring he's highlighting this fact that he is much more to marry than just a a son much more He was her Savior. And in fact, when you read the Scripture, Mary herself recognizes that Jesus was her Savior. And I say that because there is a particular theological system in our world today that believes that Mary is is sinless and and is somehow a a sinless co-redemptionist, if you will. I don't know what else you want to call that and somehow you can pray to Jesus' earthly mother, and she's going to go and tell Jesus what to do. My friends, that's idolatry. That's heresy. That's false teaching. She was just as dependent upon Jesus' death and life as I am, and you are. She was in need of divine grace because she, too, was a sinner, and she herself even recognized that. So let's be perfectly clear here. It's a form of idolatry when anyone bestows upon Jesus' earthly mother, Mary, any honor or, or title or some kind of a uh, of an attribute that, that kind of gives her some kind of an equal or a co-equal status in, in this work of redemption. She is not equal with Jesus in any way. Jesus is clearly God. She is not. So she is not deserving of of some special veneration or special worship and she is not to be one to be prayed to are we crystal clear on this i hope we are and so uh, having said that uh christ did love her christ clearly honored his mother as as a mother and so he fulfilled that fifth commandment okay christ didn't come to destroy the commandments he came to fulfill the law and It was important that he lived the perfect life, which you and I could never live, and he did that in every way. So part of the responsibility here of honoring one's parents is it's it's your duty, just as it was Christ's duty, to make sure that his earthly mother was cared for in in her old age. And that's exactly what he's doing here, making sure that she is loved and cared for, that she would not be neglected. The fourth saying of Christ from the cross is a petition to God the Father. Uh, You'll find this one in Matthew 27. Turn over to Matthew 27. Please turn to your Bibles Matthew 27. And it's uh, just one verse, one verse, verse 46. And this is Christ's fourth saying. I think it's probably the richest in mystery and, and in meaning. I certainly don't fully understand it. It's really hard to understand this one. But look what Matthew writes. Uh, we'll look at starting in Matthew 27, verse 45. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. So we got three hours. Three hours. Verse 46. And it says, And the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's all he says in this passage here. It might seem at first glance that Christ is just somehow just simply reciting Psalm 22. We read Psalm 22 earlier. Remember in verse 1, uh, it says something very similar here uh, to Matthew 27, verse 46. Uh, some, some have said, "Well, Jesus is just, you know, reciting Psalm 22. After all, he knew the Old Testament. Uh, he often quoted from the Psalms. But just think about this for a moment. Uh, given the the fact that all of Psalm 22 is an extended prophecy uh, about the crucifixion, I think it's probably better for us to look at at this as more of a prophetic looking forward, a prophetic anticipation of." what Jesus was going to say, his cry from the cross here. This is just no mere recitation. He's not up there just saying, uh, well, let's see, what did Psalm 22, verse 1 say? My God, oh yeah, that's what it said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No, it was far more than, than just doing that. Here's Christ, he's hanging on the cross, he's bearing sin. Now that, it may not be significant to, to you and me, because we are sinners, but Jesus is sinless. He's holy, totally unique and distinct, separate from his creation here. And so, here he is, he's dying as a substitute for us. And so, to him, the Bible says, was imputed the guilt of sinners. He's suffering in our place. He's receiving the punishment for all of the, the, uh, of the sin of these people, right? He is bearing their sin, their guilt, their shame on their behalf. And the very essence, by the way, of that punishment was God's wrath against sinners. And so when, when the Bible talks about Jesus being in the garden, bearing, you know, taking that cup, that's the cup of God's wrath, which you deserve. And so in some mysterious way, the Father poured out the full measure of His wrath for, uh, against sin, and He pours it out on His beloved Son. So the recipient of that wrath was Jesus Christ, God's only Son. And here's what's happening on the cross, my friends. God was punishing His own Son, and He's punishing Him as if He was the one who committed all those sins. He, it's like all these people, wicked people like us, done all these wicked, evil deeds, And it's taking all of that, putting it on one person who is sinless, and he gets all the punishment that all these millions and billions of people deserve. And he did it so that he could forgive and treat all those redeemed ones as if they had lived Christ's perfect life of righteousness. You understand, my friend, Christ didn't just wash away your sin. The blood of Jesus Christ doesn't just wash away sin. It does that, yes. But you also receive Christ's righteousness. So when God the Father looks at you, He doesn't just see a clean, empty nothingness. He sees Christ in you. So Scripture teaches this explicitly, by the way, and several times. I'll just give you one example here on the screen. It says 2 Corinthians 5.21. He, that's God the Father, made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That is awesome. And so it was God's own sense of justice that Christ satisfied on the cross. That's what propitiation is. So when you read First John 2, please understand that. Jesus is your wrath absorber. He's receiving what you deserve. Jesus didn't deserve that. You do. So the shedding of his blood was a sin offering that was rendered to God the Father. His death was not a ransom paid to Satan. Now, I've heard false teachers say that. No, it wasn't paid to Satan. Satan has no right to receive any ransom here. No, this this ransom was paid to God the Father. Satan has no right to claim any ransom from God for sinners. He's just a created being, like the other angels. So the ransom price was paid to God the Father. So Christ, here He is, He's dying in our place. He's there in our stead. He's our substitute. He's receiving the same wrath that we deserve as sinners. And so it was a punishment that was, as far as I understand it, was so severe that you think about this no mortal human being could spend all of all of eternity in hell in the in the lake of fire and possibly atone for their own sin and that's why when, when you go to the lake of fire when you go to hell you're you're not getting out you cannot get out it's for all of eternity and so those who think that they're good enough to get to heaven on their own will spend eternity paying receiving The penalty for their sin. And they'll never get out. But the beautiful thing is that Christ has the power and the ability to absorb that for you. So you don't have to. And so the fact that Christ made this cry, by the way, the Bible says, with a loud voice. Did you see that in your text? With a loud voice. (laughs) This means something to him here. He's not just reciting from Scripture. This hurts. His father is, 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 in a sense, distant from him, is separated from him, but his father is also getting him, giving him his wrath. And so that hurt Jesus. This was a cry from Jesus' soul. Let's move on to number five. The fifth saying was a plea for Relief. The plea for relief. Turn to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. Look at verse 28. John 19, verse 28. Short little saying from Jesus here. John 19, 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill the scripture, I thirst. I thirst. This was Christ's fifth saying from the cross. And so here, it's coming toward the end of Jesus' earthly life. So he makes this final plea. It's, It's a plea for physical relief. Now this is significant. I'll remind you, my friends. John is primarily writing to show that Jesus is God. He is divine He is deity. So this is the book on Jesus' deity. And in the midst of this book on Jesus' deity, John also shows us that Jesus is also a human. We we see Jesus' humanity here. God doesn't get thirsty. But Jesus is thirsty. And he says, I thirst. Earlier, we, we saw... In the Bible, he actually spat out the vinegar that was mixed with some sort of a painkiller, and that painkiller had been offered to him, typically it was offered to people so they wouldn't squirm around so much and get the job done. And so now he's asking for relief from the the thirst of dehydration here. He was given a sponge saturated with vinegar. You ever had vinegar? Especially when you're thirsty. <laughs> uh, John actually says this in verse 29. Look at verse 29. He says, A jar full of sour wine. This is vinegar. Sour wine it stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Yeah, they have to do this. Jesus can't reach for it. and He can't do it himself. And so in his thirst, we see the true humanity of Jesus Christ we we see in the book of john two natures in one person so although he was god incarnate in his physical body he's experiencing human limitations just like you do you get thirsty don't you of course you do you get thirsty you get hungry well so did jesus and so he suffered bodily to an, an to an extent few have ever suffered one of the reasons for that here is is he's fulfilling Scripture. Did you notice that? We, re, we read that in verse 28. It was to fulfill the Scripture. And by the way, if you look at Psalm 69, Psalm 69 says this, They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. So Jesus is fulfilling Psalm 69 as, as he does this here. Let's move on. Number six, the sixth saying of Jesus from the cross is a proclamation of victory. Look at verse 30. Verse 30, uh, John's account of the crucifixion says this. uh, When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now in the Greek text, it's one word. Uh, the saying of Jesus from the cross here is just a single word in the Greek text. die uh, uh, or something like that is how you'd say it. Uh, this is a triumphant cry. It's a triumphant cry. So when Jesus says it's finished, this, this is full of rich meaning. He He didn't mean just merely that his earthly life was over. <laughs> this is far more important than that. He meant that the work of the Father that had been given to him, the Father's will, was now complete. And so as he hung there, as a a victim, some might think, he's celebrating the greatest triumph in the history of the universe. Christ's atoning work was finished. What had he done? Well, the redemption for sinners was complete. He had made the ransom to his Father, and he was triumphant. So Christ had fulfilled on behalf of sinners like you and me what which we could never we could never do for ourselves everything that the law of god required was fulfilled in jesus full atonement had been made i love that song that we we sometimes sing maybe we'll sing it next week full atonement full atonement was made everything that the the law had foreshadowed as it pointed to christ had been accomplished in christ God's justice was satisfied. The ransom for sin was paid in full. The Wages of sin were settled forever. Jesus died and rose again, conquering the wages of sin, which is death. So all that remained then next was for Jesus to just die and to rise again. Notice in the text it says that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He gave it up willingly gave it up and that's why nothing can be added to the work of jesus christ for salvation nothing not your good works no one else's good works not anyone's prayers nothing and so no religious ritual can accomplish even a a small part of your salvation no human work is needed to to add to jesus work for you it's not going to help one bit no human work could ever improve on jesus' atonement that 's not possible because Jesus paid in full it 's already done, and so the merit of Christ alone is sufficient for our full salvation. my friends now but this is this is repeated over and over in scripture i 'll just give you one example uh, just you can see that christ's atoning work is done there's nothing that you can do ephesians two verse eight you know this it says, "For by grace you have been saved." through faith, not not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Well, last of all, quickly, we see the seventh saying of Jesus Christ from the cross is a prayer of consummation. Uh, turn over to Luke chapter 23 for this one. Luke chapter 23. This is the last thing we see in Scripture before Jesus' death. Luke 23, verse 46. So Christ's final saying from the cross was a prayer of submission. Here's what Luke records of Jesus' last words. Luke 23, verse 46. It says this, Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. My friends, do you realize that Christ died a death that nobody else has ever died? In one sense, you understand Jesus was murdered by wicked men. And they are, by the way, they are fully responsible for what they did. Fully responsible for what they did. But in another sense, the Scripture says it was God the Father who sent Jesus to the cross. That's what Isaiah 53 says. It It pleased the Father to crush His Son. And and yet, in another sense, nobody actually took Jesus' life. Because you you can't kill God. (laughs) He's the one who is willingly giving His life up for these people whom He loves. Willingly, He did that. So when He finally expired on the cross here, it was not with a struggle. There was no struggle. He's not displaying any sort of a death row you might see in some movie these days. No, none of that. His final passage into, into death was something that was deliberate. It was a deliberate act on his, his part. He's in sovereign control of what is going on here. He was in control of all that was happening. In fact, here's again, look at the text, John 19.30. John 19.30 says this. Oh, sorry, I I moved on to a different text. Anyway, I'll remind you, John 19.30 says this, that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He just submits to death, submits to his Father's will. He does it quietly. He does it submissively. He simply yields up his life. My friend, for most people that day, it probably seemed like a great tragedy. For Pilate, it probably seemed like a tragedy because he believed Jesus was innocent. For for many of the, the Jews that were there, it probably seemed like a tragedy. For Jesus' disciples, it certainly seemed like a tragedy. Even for those, those people who were walking on the road to Emmaus. Remember, after the, Jesus comes and he, and he meets them, they thought it was a tragedy that Jesus of Nazareth had died. Most people had thought this was a supreme tragedy, But in reality, what was it? It was was the greatest moment in history. And Christ would make that fact crystal clear when just three days later He would burst out of that tomb. His body left those grave clothes behind. He conquered death. He conquered sin. He conquered Satan once and for all. Because you can't hold Jesus there. He had a purpose to fulfill. He had come to save His people from their sins, Matthew 1.21 says. He came to make the ransom. He came to pay the penalty, and He did it. But He needed to live to conquer death, and He did that through His resurrection. Which, by the way, also shows us a wonderful truth that in Jesus' resurrection shows that God the Father's wrath and justice was satisfied in His Son's atonement. So my friend, you and I, we no longer need to fear death. We need to lo- no longer to be, need to be ashamed to experience the guilt because Jesus did that for you. And so we as, if you're a believer today, we, we, we must trust in Christ and His finished work. He said it was finished. Do you believe that? My friend, you must believe that. It makes all the difference in the world. And so, come what may into your life, life can fall apart. But there is one who remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Hebrews says, that's Jesus. (laughs) And so it's very easy to get a noisy soul when we look around us. We see our lives are not what we want them to be. Certainly not all the time. But my friend, Jesus doesn't change. Jesus has accomplished what you could never do on your own. Never. So, even as believers, unbelievers must, of course, put their faith in Jesus Christ alone. It's not, and you can't take Jesus plus your works. It's Jesus alone. So we as believers, it's the same, my friends. We must continually believe and put our faith and trust in, in Jesus alone. Because not only did He conquer the penalty of your sin, He conquered the power of your sin. And you must rely upon Him to deal with the presence of sin in your life too. That will happen when you're glorified, when you see Him as He is. My friends, may God open your eyes, your spiritual eyes, to see Jesus and His work for you.